This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. If you love brewing as much as we do and are inspired by the work of leading commercial brewers like Mitch Steele of New Realm, Tommy Arthur of Lost Abbey, Matt Brindleson of Firestone Walker, Jeff Stuffings and Avery Swanson of Jester King, Jason Perkins of Allagash, and more, then put one of our 2018 Brewers Retreat events on your calendar. These luxury brewing events at gorgeous resort locations around the country pair great brewers, great food, and intimate camaraderie for a truly unique and unforgettable experience. Learn more at brewersretreat.com. And if you're interested in reaching the thousands of listeners who tune into every episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing podcast, we'd love to welcome you as a sponsor. For more information, drop an email to info at beerandbrewing.com and our media sales team will craft a plan that works for you. Hi, everybody. It's John Hall, and I'm coming to you from Kalamazoo, Michigan, where this is going to be the first of a couple of episodes I'm doing from the Michigan Brewers Guild uh, annual conference here. And we're in Kalamazoo, which is, if you're a beer fan, you're aware of the Bell's Brewery. And I'm very excited today that my guest is Larry Bell, the founder of the brewery. Larry, thanks for being here, first of all. Thanks, John. Good afternoon and happy birthday to you. It's your birthday it today, is, right? Yeah. It is my birthday. Thank you very much. And uh, this is it's fun to be hanging out with you, um, uh, uh, Ford. It's almost as good as cake. Almost. 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 Um, I was at the brewery last night and, uh, you know, I was looking around and, and, and thinking about the history. And I should say the, the downtown brewery, the, the larger brewery in, in Comstock nearby. But, um, and it... it, it it has this great, comfortable neighborhood feel, uh, you know, even even still. And I, I, I'm curious as to what the original plan for the brewery was. Did, did, did you think that it would still be, or did you think that it would be what it was today? Was there original brewery plan? Was there... You know, <clears throat> originally, you know, we had so, so little money. Uh, I had taken a class with uh, Bill Newman out in Albany, New York. There were about 40 people that took... Newman's class, and only two of us, I believe, ever opened a brewery, uh, myself and Mark Stutrud up at Summit. And, um, you know, Newman basically said, you know, rule of thumb at the time was you had to have $250,000 to open a brewery. And, you know, we opened up with a total capitalization of 39000 And so we knew, we knew we didn't have enough money. And so the original plan was just to try and develop a product and market for that product and then go out and secure some real financing. You know, originally when I was, I was young and single, I thought I was going to move up north. I wrote a plan for the Traverse Bay Brewing Company. I wound up being around Kalamazoo. It turned into Kalamazoo Brewing Company. Um, but, you know... By today's standards, I think uh, you know our initial goals were were relatively modest. I I'd hoped to build the brewery up to thirty thousand barrels. Um, some of the old timers I had visited, old regional breweries, suggested you know you could get a, a brewery up to thirty thousand barrels and stay there and and have a nice family business, and um, that that seemed reasonable at the time. Uh, I, but see, it, it's interesting to hear that because this was a, this was in the what the mid eighties. 
early 80s. Early 80s. A lot of the other brewers from that generation, though, you, you talk to some of them and say, well, we were never going to go beyond 5,000 barrels. And so for you to say... 30,000 kind of strike, it sticks out in my mind a little bit as, uh, you know, even ambitious for a small brewery. Well, you know, so the first time I got a commercial brewing lesson was in 1980. In November of 1980, I was hitchhiking from Kalamazoo to Washington, D.C., and I uh, talked my way into the Jones Brewing Company in Smithton, Pennsylvania, and talked my way into the brew house. and. Uh, they gave me they gave me a lesson and you know Jones was probably about 30,000 barrels at that time and Geyer Brothers were Dick Rosevick up there they were 30,000 barrels Straub was uh, 30,000 barrels so you know there were people that were hanging on that were still at that level who hadn't necessarily gone to to try and compete against the big boys on a national scope and so in a lifetime, that seemed reasonable to okay. to get to thirty. In a lifetime. In a lifetime, yeah, to build a business up to that level. How long did it take you to hit thirty thousand? Uh, so I got to think. The last year that we were downtown Kalamazoo, we did thirty thousand. So that was two thousand one. So sixteen years. Okay. And you guys last year did four hundred and sixty-three thousand eight hundred and ninety <laughs> barrels. <laughs> I happen to know that because I had a report yesterday. Well, sure. But, I mean, that's that's so far beyond. It's, you know, uh, the number one question I get asked uh, by, you know, media customers is, did you ever, did you ever think, did you ever imagine it would be like this? And, of course not, no. And I don't, I think if you talk to, to you know, anybody else uh, of my era, Jim, and you've talked to them all, uh, you know, Jim Cook or, or Ken Grossman or uh, Gary Fish. Nobody, nobody had a clue that uh, what we were embarking on was, was going to blow up the way that it did. Um, you know, now for, you know, for me, you know, things started really slowly and small um, and built as opposed to, I mean, I'm flabbergasted by people who open up in their first year they sell 8,000 barrels, like, ah, you know how long it took me to get there? Yeah. yeah. But was there a moment, because you have the perspective of time in this, was was there a moment when you realized that you were going to go beyond, or that you could go beyond 30,000, where you just, you realized that this niche industry uh, could become more mainstream, and, and, and to where it is today? Was, was there... I think an you know, aha moment for you at yeah, that point. Yeah, you know, I think that point is when, you know, we get up to thirty thousand barrels, and we were in, in the old downtown brewery, and which was pretty coarse, and we are actually building a new proper brewery in green space. I hired John Mallet as a consultant, and hold that this is, this is real brewing equipment. This is the real thing now, and, yeah, you know, you're going to get noticed by the big guys. And yeah, this is this has really changed it now. We're we're beyond what our our home brewing days took us to, and now we're a real brewing company. As you've been doing this now for for, for quite a while, you've started to transition out from the business a little bit, um, and and your daughter Laura has been stepping up more and more. When you first got into this, though, did you ever have an exit strategy? Did you ever think about the end? Did you ever? Uh, 
you know, that was one of the things that I probably did wrong in setting up uh, the company originally was, you know, because I sold stock in the company and I did not have provisions for ways to get those shareholders out of the company and um, it became a problem for us and it's been documented. There was a lawsuit in 2006. I got sued by some shareholders for shareholder oppression and um, uh, because we didn't have provisions of, of how we went forward and it became a problem because the bank uh, uh, had come to me and finally said they'd asked me to move people out and finally said we're not going to finance you anymore unless you get rid of these people and they agreed to finance the, the stock buyout of them and it was contentious um, you know and there were a lot of people that thought well I was just doing that so I could go sell to Anheuser or to a bigger company and certainly some of these people that's what they wanted to do and that's why I wanted to move them out I never really thought about it there, there was a point where I thought if I couldn't get them out that there was going to have to be a sale um, you know and then as Laura came on well then I, I'm fortunate um, in that she's got the passion and drive and uh, a real acumen for the industry so you know that that becomes my my exit strategy that we're a legacy brewery which quite honestly in my opinion is probably the hardest way to do things it's easy to to take a check from somebody or do some other deal to do all the accounting and to transfer the wealth on uh, takes a lot of accountants and lawyers and uh, it, it takes some some time but you know to me it's very worthwhile if you didn't have Laura waiting in the wings, had you thought about what you might want to do or what you might have to do? Certainly, you know, and I think, you know, um, uh, there was uh, the look at uh, going public. And I think it's interesting that um, really since the earlier days of craft where you had a couple companies that, that went public, you know, Sam Adams, right, Boston Beer, Boston Beer and, uh, um, you know, we haven't really seen anybody go IPO. Ballast Point was... They were flirting with it. They were flirting with IPO, and then, you know, they had their sale, but... To Constellation, yeah. There's probably, you know, there's probably still a chance for somebody at the right time to do an IPO. And, you know, that certainly was something that that I thought about about doing but you know uh, if I was gonna ever have to sell to if I had to sell to one of the big guys it'd be show me the money I'm out of here I don't want to <laughs> stick around and, and see this so and you would and you would have just cashed your check and just gone your way yeah I, I think I probably would have had uh, difficulty uh, with my independent nature of working in a larger uh, corporate brewery structure. You've been so hands-on, though, and you have been so tied up in the personality of the brewery, though. Um, I mean, this seems like this is the best avenue for you, because even if you did walk away, any time that somebody else would make a move on your, on your company or do something under what is your name, even if you didn't have a part to it, would probably drive you up the wall. It, it could be, and yeah. You know, I think that... You bring up something interesting that uh, that I think about is um, we're probably one of the few breweries that uses our family name. Yeah, 
You know, there's a lot of breweries out there, obviously, these days, but, but not necessarily family name. And so it is very personal because it is our, our name on the, on the product. So, yeah, to think about Bell's Brewery that's owned by, by Industrial Brew, uh, you know, I thought about that. If I ever had to do that deal, that I would, I would try and separate out the bar because the bar contains all things that I've collected in my travels, all my my art and artifacts and whatnot. I throw up on, on the wall, yeah. And so it's a very personal place for me. So I, I would I would have had to keep that. Have we lost some of the personal nature in beer? Uh, as we have so many more breweries, as, uh, as as we have a lot of these larger breweries that that are that are coming in, um, it seemed that for for a while. You know, it, it was this very intimate thing where, you know, we had to travel for beer, we had to, um, you know, uh, travel for experiences, as it were, and now it's so prevalent and it's it, it's everywhere. Have we, have we lost some of the the, the personalness? Well, I, I think that um, I think things exist on a couple different levels. So for quote unquote old guys like me, you know, that have been around the industry for a while. Um, what our group had, uh, yeah, we probably lost some of what we had as there's been buyouts and and changes there, and uh, you know there there was a lot of glue that stuck us all together in the early days, and those changes and our size and some of the competitive things that happen out there, uh, yeah, we've lost some of that intimacy, and yet here we are, you know, at this conference, and I look at all the the new small guys so they've got a, a great glue together I don't necessarily have it with with them because I'm you know I'm the old big guy to them um, but I see them all together and they're all starting out and they're young and new companies and I see a, a lot of camaraderie among them still and an intimacy that reminds me of of my more youthful days as well. So I think it exists on a couple levels there. How has it been coming up early on? Um, and you, you've been pretty, you know, outspoken on some of the folks who who have uh, sold to other companies. Um, how have those relationships changed? You know, do, do do the relationships between brewers change when there's a sale? Oh, absolutely. I mean, is there because I you hear you hear sometimes like oh you know I'm never going to talk to so and so again or somebody's like oh but they're still my friend like that that kind of thing like is that is it is it such a black and white thing? In, in, in it's beer? not necessarily black and white. Of course, every relationship is unique, um, but um, things definitely change. Um, you know, when I think depends on how it goes, but in general, I think. When, when a craft brewery gets sold out to a big guy, um, there's a culture change, there's a, a change in tactics out there in the marketplace that, in general, uh, become more unsavory. And, uh, and there's just, uh, there, you know, certainly I, uh, I find myself not really as willing to share information uh, because that's it's going to some large multinational corporation that would love to to get more information about how we think and all and uh, becomes more of a competitive nature so yeah there, there it definitely brings changes uh, 
we see the fans react when these things happen, when uh, when there when there's craft sales and, and people take it, uh, you know, craft to, to larger brewing entities, um, and they take it personally. Um, was there anyone that you felt as like a beer fan, as a beer consumer, that hurt you more than others? No, not necessarily. Um, every time I see one, it does seem to take a little. Uh, nick out of my my brewer's soul, you know. Oh, gee, there goes a, there goes a, you know a, another one, and you know I, I like to think of myself as somewhat of a of a student of, of the industry, and I I've always been quoted many times saying you know that beer is about twenty five years behind what happened to wine in the United States, and uh, when you go to the grocery store now and you look at all the wine that's there. 90% of it's owned by three companies. Yeah. But, and, you know, one of those is Constellation, who's done a great job at keeping, you know, the labels that looks like some family-owned independent uh, winery, but no, they're all owned by Constellation or they're owned by Gallo. And so those big guys have seen that in wine, and that's what they want to do to beer. Um, they want to buy it all up and make it look like it's independent craft beer. Um I, th I think as independent craft brewers, we we have um, the advantage of, of that history and time on our side. So, you know, we might do a better job at, at denoting that we're still independent brewers. What does it mean to be an independent brewer these days? You know, I, for me, um, you know, I, I look at my employees. I, I like to think that we treat our employees well. Nobody, nobody's ever wanted to try and start a union at Bell's, right? Um, and um, because, you know, we focus on the employees. We we focus on our sustainability programs, and, and not just because they're, uh, they make good business sense, but because we actually like taking care of the environment and natural resources and things like that. And uh, as opposed to uh, we have to make certain margins uh, to keep shareholders happy, and you know the number one thing we're going to focus on is is how much money we're going to make. Mm -hmm. um, that's not you know obviously it's something important because you have to sustain the business. Sure, but it's not the number one thing that we're focused on. Um, you know, we're we're not going to um, we're not going to change our standards uh, to try and get more volume and generate more revenue because that's that's what uh, Wall Street wants us to do right we like making all malt beer we got into this business to make damn all malt beer right and um, you know okay yeah hop slams made with some honey I know I, I, I know um, but you know when and I'm, there's some other things that I saw on tap last night as well but yeah that's yeah but it's not we're, we're not we're not slipping down the slope of, of making industrial lager and bringing in corn syrup or anything like that. What about the independent breweries, though, who do? Because I know you're, you're saying that as like sort of like a slam. Like, is independence about ingredients? Like, what, like, because I know under the old craft definition, no, uh, no, no, know, no, 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 traditional ingredients, but. No, 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 I'm just saying that that's, that's for us. And, okay. um, you know, I certainly think, I think probably independence is, is the key word right now that that uh, tends to bind our group together more uh, if you look 
say uh, what the Brewers Association is. Um, we were talking earlier before we started this about what does craft mean, and sure. and yeah, it's been co-opted and and uh, beaten to a dead pulp. Uh, so. Uh, and it's hard for the consumer. It's confusing to the consumer to try and understand what craft is. And I think, you know, the BAs define what a craft brewer is. But that's basically, you know, they use that term at the time to defend uh, or define what their membership is. Sure. Yeah, it was never intended to be a commercial yeah, You know, and I think when you look at the, the Brewers Association, that was a, a merger of two groups, the Association of Brewers and the Brewers Association of America. Uh, and I was involved with both, and the old BAA was really, you know, was started in 1941 to uh, to give a voice to small brewers in the United States to make sure that we had access to ingredients and supplies and access to market. And that's really, you know, that's sort of where the battle is enjoined these days when, you know, when the big guys are buying up all the craft brewers and they go to the chain stores and say here's what the set is going to look like and they fill it up with all their faux craft or you know their their newly acquired craft brands they're pushing us off the shelf uh, and that's that's why we exist together as independent brewers to try and have that voice and make sure we can get our products to market i mean it, it sometimes it does seem like a smoke and mirrors game when when we do get so hung up on Labels. When it does come down to ingredients, it does come down to size, it does come down to... How do you, as one of the larger craft breweries, larger independent breweries uh, in, in the country, how, how do you work to get fair share for not only yourself but the other independent brewers to ingredients, to uh, supply chains, to, to, to market? Like, wh where does that fight begin? Because it's easy to say, you know... Well, Screw the big guys. Um, well, uh, you have to be involved. You have to take a role, and you have to work. I mean, uh, early on, uh, we took a, a seat on the on the board of directors of the American Malting Barley Association. And while I, I'm technically the seat holder, I've given that up now to the technical people um, because they're the ones that really should be there. But I got on, and I, I helped recruit other small brewers you know, because if it's just um, if it's just the big guys sitting around that table, they're the ones that are going to determine what malt is and what new lines come. And we've got all kinds of, of smaller brewers being involved there now. We've helped out. We've grown test lines. Uh, you know, and then also on the hop side of things, when when InBev bought uh, AB and they they got rid of their their hop people. We hired him as a consultant and formed a new group, a hop quality group, uh, and we as the small brewers were the ones that started driving quality in the United States and what are the standards for hop growing, because Anheuser had done that, and, and they yeah. kind of, in that way, they kind of took care of things, and there was a, a vacuum created uh, when when MDEV said, oh, we got people in Belgium, they'll do this. So, you know, we've had to get involved and say what we think on that industry level, and and so it takes some some being proactive and and making sure you have your say out there and being involved with the wholesalers you know are you going to see the national beer wholesalers are you do you know your state wholesalers association and are you making relationships there so they understand what your needs are for for getting to market you mentioned 
so when you first started, you you couldn't afford to make a bad pint, right? I mean, it's it, it's you were it was you against. The, the big guys. I mean, I'm sure that there were some, some tough batches that came out, but if you had, but putting stuff like that out to market would, and we saw the shakeout uh, in, in the early 2000s of, you know, uh, a lot of poor quality beer being made and Anheuser and, and a lot of the other larger brewers, you know, sort of pounced on that. And the ones who had dialed in their processes, the ones who knew how to identify off flavors, who would pull beer if it wasn't uh, tasting the way that it should, uh, did relatively well afterwards and were able to grow. Uh, and, and, and become better. Um, I don't know how much you're out drinking and how much you see these days, but I mean, I'm I'm still concerned, and I've said this before, on how much poor beer is being made by smaller breweries. And you know, maybe they hide behind the word craft, maybe they hide behind the word independence. But you know, if if quality and and all the work that you've put into it. Um, does that just drive you up the wall sometimes wow. when it's like, fellas, we did this for you, and what the hell? I, I think the word that gets hidden uh, behind most is local. You know, well, <laughs> just because it's local doesn't mean it's good. Yeah. You know, if it's local and good, hallelujah. You know, that, you know, I, I, I'm all for that. Uh, I remember being in Asheville a couple of years ago, uh, North Carolina, Asheville, and uh, it, the signs in the window was uh, local is the new black. Right. Uh, you know, um, and I think we continue to see, it, you know, the barriers to, to entry in the market are as low as they ever have been. Um, there is a plethora of companies selling inexpensive equipment, albeit, in my opinion, not quality equipment. Right. But it's easy uh, to f have a consultant who can get some paperwork done for for you, you buy some cheap equipment, you're in a rented warehouse, and dude, I'm brewing beer. Um, you know. Uh, and well, but hold on, because you said uh, you needed two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You were told, and you started with thirty nine thousand uh, dollars. I mean, a lot of these guys are doing doing the same thing. Or did you have luxury back then of time and white space that they don't have today? Yeah, you know, I think I think. We did because we didn't know what we're doing, and by the time, by the time 1990 came and uh, Michigan was starting to get hip to craft beer, we'd we'd made most of the mistakes that we needed to make by that time on a very small platform, and um, so we kind of had that that out of the way. Um, yeah, there continues to be uh, some poor quality beer out there, and and that concerns us, and that's you know part of this conference here. There's the master brewers group that we are very much involved in, with here and you know we try and drive that quality message to to the other brewers and uh and help when we can uh with them educate them on those those quality issues we try and help uh you know on the draft issues out there in the marketplace uh we get involved in those sorts of things because we're still you know uh, we're 12 percent of the market. That means there's 88 percent of the market that we're not. And if uh, the overall beer drinking, yeah. Market, and if that yeah. macro beer drinker, if they're their first time with a, you know, with craft beer, ugh, this isn't any good. They're probably not going to come back. So, you know, I'm still concerned about that overall industry aspect and, and trying to present uh, a united quality front uh, from an industry standpoint. So, being at the brewery last night, I was struck. Um, you guys still uh, have homebrew equipment. You 
guys still? We're actually, uh, <clears throat> this summer we sell, uh, we'll celebrate 35 years of selling. Because I started in 1983, I opened the homebrew shop. Uh, that was the precursor to the brewery. Yeah. So we've been selling homebrew equipment and ingredients for 35 years. I, I would think that as you would have gotten bigger, that would have just been something that would have fallen on the wayside. Is it? Is it a? I is love it, it. Okay. Uh, you know, who better than to sell homebrew equipment than a than a brewery, right? And uh, um, we have a annual homebrew competition where the winner gets to come in and brew on our 15-barrel system. And, you know, home brewers continue to be sort of the minor leagues of uh, commercial brewers. You cannot, John, it, it does kind of crack me up, and it was even mentioned in the meeting this morning, somebody, about how they they come to Bell's Homebrew Shop, commercial brewers. Trust me, there are, there are commercial brewers in this town, <laughs> licensed brewers that come and buy from our homebrew shop for, for their... You know, they, I, I was in the store uh, a couple months ago, and I heard the clerk saying, but sir, we've already sold you uh, all the 50-pound sacks of malt that we have. We don't generally stock that many. You know, we understand you're a commercial. Well, I can't get my own account with L.D. Carlson, so i got to buy from you. You know, somebody's super small, and uh, I get a kick out of it. I, and I think it just it keeps us honest in a way, uh, you know, that... This is this is where we started, and uh, it's still part of our DNA. There's still there's still part of me that's a home brewer, and that sometimes in thinking up recipes and stuff, like when we did the Planet series, the last one, Laura was Dad. I got to have the recipe for Neptune, and I finally wrote it out one night. And I, I actually took a picture on my phone and sent it to her, and she's like, Dad, really? And two days later, it's like, Dad, you know there are five things five ingredients here that are by the federal government not generally recognized as safe. <laughs> like, what? So this is like a homebrew recipe. You can't do this. Like, all right. I want to talk to you about recipe development because uh, last night I was at the brewery and uh, I was drinking a pint of Two Hearted, which I can't get where I live uh, in New Jersey, and I hope to uh, one day if, uh, if you can What's tell. What's it worth to you? Well... <laughs> Not that much. I mean, I'm a writer, so it's, uh, yeah. It's, I'll see what I can do. Okay, thank yeah. you. Um, but, you know, I was drinking too hearted, and, and somebody mentioned that uh, this isn't even the original too hearted. And, and I think what, what's interesting is it's a celebrated beer. Uh, last year at the AHA, you guys were voted uh, best beer uh, in show or best best beer in the country by all of the home brewers. You guys unseated Pliny. Uh, Kalamazoo closed their schools. Kids danced in the street. It was uh, much joy and celebration um, uh, uh, here. But people might be surprised to find out that this is not um, uh, the original Two-hearted. Yeah, you know, the original was uh, came from, oh, going over to Madison to the great taste of the Midwest and in the early days, in the late 80s, and hanging out with some of the, the people I met there and a late-night bottle share. And um, I met a, a guy that grew hops in, like, northern Wisconsin, which, I mean, that was, like, that was pretty radical for 1987 or 88 or whatever it was. And, uh, As I mean, a cyber, I mean, do you remember what was served at those? Like, what was showing up at bottle shares in the late '80s? Uh, hmm. Old Foghorn. Okay. Uh, uh, imports. Uh, you know, there might be a few. You know, some there was some craft stuff. Uh, 
uh, certainly, you know, I'd come with some of mine that I wasn't necessarily selling in Wisconsin or, you know, that some of these sellered for a little bit. So, um, anyways. Okay, so you met a guy who was selling he, hops. He's yeah. selling hops. I think I made a deal to buy 300 pounds of Wisconsin hops from him. And so the one heart, if you would, will, would be Wisconsin hops. And then I was using some English malt. So those were kind of the two hearts uh, of this of this beer. Four batches were made. Only two were quality enough to sell. And then the image we were using, uh, a gentleman's face, a f- famous writer in uh, Michigan, um, he was getting old, kind of senile, and he forgot that he'd given us permission to use his image, and his attorney sent me a cease and desist. And Well, anyways, we, we agreed to not do that anymore, and the project kind of faded, faded away. And then um, uh, I had a brewer uh, in, the, in the 90s, uh, early 90s, wanted to make IPA. Single hop IPA was Centennial Hop, and um, we needed a name for it. Well, I've got this one on the shelf. I got a name. I got a name, Two-Hearted Ale, and so we brought, we brought Two-Hearted back for this, this new single hop uh, IPA that, that he had made. And so, and uh, obviously that's done very well for us now. You know, I'm always curious about this because I know that the American beer revolution of the of the modern age has been built on the back of hops. Um, did you ever think that it would be the biggest selling craft style, that IPA would rule the way that it does today, that it would be fanatical with fans walking around with hop tattoos and, you know, these, uh, you know, the, this, this, this weird little bitter flower is as celebrated in the way that it was. I mean, it's, uh, I know you get a lot of perspective questions, but. Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, you think about, um, you know, in the, in the late eighties and early nineties, the beer that was building the brewery was Bell's Amber Ale. Continues to be our number three beer, but you know, it's not, and it's a fantastic beer. It goes great with food, not sexy for, in today's market. Um, and then, then came the wheat beer revolution, and we had Oberon, which is a seasonal, had no idea that cloudy wheat beer was going to take off, and you know, and and now that's building the brewery for many years, and now along come hops, um, and you know, Oberon was Soul Sun slash Oberon was number one in the brewery for many years, it's a solid number two now, and certainly in the summer in Michigan, it. it Kicks patootie all over the place. Yeah, but and now and now you got you got hops ruling the day and and IPAs. Will that continue to go on? I think that goes on for a while. Um, obviously, we're we're seeing some new scenarios and some new products and using hops in in different ways. But uh, I think hops are here to stay. So Bell's is known for one thing, uh, or known for those beers, and 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 speaks to a certain sect of the uh, uh, you know the beer community. Obviously, the the, the home brewers love you. We talked about that, and your your love of home brewing. But um, a couple years ago, you guys started a, a whole second brewery in the Upper Peninsula, 
and I, I I think that in some cases some breweries might just have an extension, have just a line extension, you know, uh, as part of the house brand. But you guys have it's a whole different identity, and and, and I'm wondering like why that was necessary and why that's important. Well, it wasn't necessary, but okay. it's fun. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah, I mean, was this a vanity? Not a vanity project, but was this just like a, a screw around project or? Um, it's fantasy project, I okay. guess. You know, uh, so as I mentioned, I, I have this love of the Upper Peninsula and, um, you know, some of my ancestors coming over, uh, settled up there in 1911 and I still own the old family house up there. Um, and every year I spring, I go up, I pass this building, man, that would make what a cool spot that'd be for a brewery. And I have home brewed up there and, um, and one year the building was for sale and I was already thinking about it. You know, John, I've been fortunate to have a successful company and so I get to do some things that perhaps don't always make the most sense. Um, well, it turned out the building wasn't wasn't suitable and it wound up getting torn down. And But I pursued the project and we wound up uh, Greenfield building in Escanaba and we call it the Upper Hand Brewery because in Michigan that's how we... When you're doing the hands. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, so yeah, and it, it really is there to celebrate uh, Upper Peninsula culture. You know that that's uh, that's what the, the beers, the names of the beers do, and the company up there. You know, where there are certain marketing rules that we have for Bells, those don't necessarily apply in the upper. You know, you go to the Upper Peninsula, it's really a different country. Well, that yeah. So, you know, there are things that Bells might not do that Upper Hand does do. Um, for example. Um, that was probably uh, we we generally don't sponsor motorsports. In the UP, we might sponsor motorsports. Um, we're making a we're coming out with a uh, a light beer up there, albeit all malt okay. light beer. But um, you know, uh, so that's something something different that that we're not necessarily doing down here. Um, and it's. Uh, it had a good year last year. It was up almost 15% in sales. We're not quite to where we want to be, but uh, I think there's currently 16 breweries in the Upper Peninsula, population 300,000, with three new ones opening in the first quarter. So it's a crowded field up there. <laughs> it seems like it. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think we're on the right path with, with the brewery. It, they make uh, great quality beer, and... Um, you know, and we've kind of tried to contain it. We don't sell the beer in the Lower Peninsula. I was going to ask, yeah. We sold in northern Wisconsin and Minnesota. Sold only where people thought funny, eh? <laughs> uh, so uh, we're trying to keep it just as a regional thing. We don't want to take over the world with it. Just want to build it up and have a nice brewery up there that that uh, enhances and celebrates the culture uh, of that region. Does that go against business instincts sometimes to not just, you know, pump the gas and see how far upper hand could go? Uh, does it take actual restraint to say like let's let's map out this footprint and then actually stick to it, or there is this is, one of those things like the you know the best the best laid plans? There there are some internal debates that happen amongst management yeah. uh, along that that issue, but so far we're we're sticking with the original game plan. Speaking of games, uh, earlier this year, 
uh, Boston Beer, Sam Adams, announced that they were going to become the official beer of the Boston Red Sox. Congratulations to them on that. Uh, I uh, follow you on social media. I know a lot of uh, folks do. Your love of the Cubs is uh, well documented. Um, uh, bordering on uh, beyond fanatical, uh, as I think that's the only way to be a Cubs fan. Uh, there's no, there's no medium position. You're either not or you're all the way f- in fanatic. DNA. Yeah. Um, when does Bell's become the official beer of the Cubs? Ah, uh, John. Uh, I believe uh, this year Anheuser will be in year five of a ten-year uh, deal for to be exclusive marketing partner, beer partner. Uh, uh, with the Cubs, and uh, certainly I know people in the Cubs organization, and uh, I, I would love to be able to uh, to sell beer at Wrigley Field. That hasn't happened at this point, um, but um, you know we, we do business with uh, seven or eight uh, major league teams. That we're we have a deal with Hold Your Breath, the Chicago White Sox, <laughs> on the south side of town. I was at opening day last year. Uh, for the Sox, and uh, did you wear a Cubs jersey? Uh, no, I did not. <laughs> I did not. Um, Laura actually threw out a first pitch at uh, White Sox this year. I was I was out of the country, um, but um, you know, and, and certainly like the Detroit Tigers, we've had a, a good relationship with, and uh, you know, uh, over in your neck of the woods, we we uh, do some business with the Mets. Okay. Uh, you know, and um, so I, I enjoy being uh, being involved in, in in the baseball scene, and certainly we sell a lot of beer uh, around Wrigley Field. I, I live in the neighborhood there in Chicago because um, I split my time between Kalamazoo and Chicago, so I can I literally walk to the games. Uh, I go down my alley to Waveland, and down Waveland to my gate, and from. From my top deck in my house, I can see the lights of Wrigley. I can, if you're not at the game, you can hear the crowd. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's got to be frustrating, though, right? Because you can be in all of these other places, uh, and you've gotten into all of these other places. But I mean, there, this this really does show, even with how big you are in craft, um, that there are still hurdles to be met. You know that that your size of craft doesn't necessarily mean that all the doors are, you know, going to open for you. No, you know, and uh, you know, uh, the big macro brewers have been around a lot longer than us. They they have a lot of volume. They have a lot of clout. They have a lot of old relationships uh, with companies, and that's how that's how the game is played. You know, it's and you know, I look at this business on the hundred year plan, right? Uh, once you get a brewery open and running and really built up uh, they go on for a long time they tend to go on for a very long time so you know uh, we're going to be here for a long time and uh, if you can't get an account this year or next year or 10 years you keep working I you know we could, we could talk for a long time about those accounts that for one reason or another you lost to personality conflict or, or you know something went awry that you know maybe you took 15 years We've had those, and we've gotten them back. So you, you just figure out, what do you got to do? Do you lay low, or how do you work it? And and over time, maybe you win that account. But nobody has 100% coverage. No. But it's harder 
to stay. It's harder to get into places now, and it's also harder, uh, you know, to to stay on just on good merit, you know, these days, right? I mean, it's it, it's there's there's certain things that are happening in the marketplace where you know brewers are going against brewers uh, these days, and I wonder how you address that and how you combat it. Well, the first thing you do is is quality. You know, and that's when we were talking uh, earlier about the quality thing. I think, you know, in the 90s, late 90s there, when there was a quality issue and there was a shakeout, I think sort of there was this plethora of new breweries that opened and there was consumer confusion. And there was a point where the consumer stood in front of the beer cooler and said, you know, I tried a new craft beer last week and I got screwed and there's no good. So I'm buying a six pack of Miller Lite for this weekend because I know that's good. Fast forward to today, that situation still happens. Probably not as much, but it still happens. But now there's so many more choices, and that consumer now can say, you know what, I spent $9.99 last week and I got screwed. I'm gonna spend it this week, I'm gonna get a six pack of Two Hearted, because I know it's quality. So they don't have to go to the macro, because there are you know, bona fide craft brands that they can trust from a quality standpoint. So that works from, for us, but that means we have to ensure that they're going to get that that quality product and it means that you have to be relentless in those relationships with the chain buyers with the independent buyers with the on-premise you know the war on premise right now is uh, that's a battlefield and when you go to places like chicago um you know i'm sorry no matter what anybody says there is pay to play and it's rampant, and it is. Uh, there are craft brewers that are doing it as well as big brewers, um, and uh, it's a game that that we have never played, and we have stood on that on that uh, tenant of our business forever. Uh, we're one of the few breweries in Chicago that doesn't doesn't play that game, that doesn't do pay to play, and and people I think people respect us for that. Does that mean we don't get certain accounts? That means we don't get certain accounts. Does it mean we're more profitable as a company and we feel better about ourselves at the end of the day? Absolutely. Because right now, uh, TTB and there are state law enforcement, it's been documented that there is a Chicago investigation going on, that people are looking into the pay-to-play thing um, as well. You're saying you're, you're, you're above the fray um, on that. So how, how does the brewery then like, how do you shake out? Like, like or ha- how do you feel like you'll come out of the other end of a shakeout of something? Like, if something does come down, uh, where people are called to the mat, do you, do you think that the uh, the consumers are going to? Uh, no, I think, but I think retailers, you know, listen. Once there's a shakeout, they'll, they'll figure out a new way around whatever new rules are 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 written there. You know, for us, you know, when. When somebody says that they want these free kegs or they want a payment or something, we explain we don't do that. And then we try and go to them and explain how we might be able to add value to to the relationship and what things we can do to help uh, promote our brand in their restaurant or bar. Um, you know, conducting tasting, staff trainings, uh, promotional nights, things like that that we're willing to do. And, and work with somebody, but we're not going to just go write a check, you know, that half the time winds up in the bartender's pocket or, or something. 
but you know it's a serious business and we will work with you to try and figure out how to enhance both of our businesses and our wholesalers business all three tiers should make money but we're not just going to go out there and hand money away what do you still want to accomplish as you're still in the brewing industry i mean you, you have a beer into wrigley field okay well aside <laughs> from that but uh i mean you haven't said you're you know retiring or anything but you know but laura's been stepping up uh, uh more and more and um you know you, you seem to have a, a a great team uh you know in in place but is there still things that you want to do i've got some other projects that i'm working on uh these days that aren't necessarily beer okay um what's that like uh, scary. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> scary. Expensive. Uh, you know, um, and unsure. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I, I certainly have a, a decreased role uh, over at, at the brewery. Um, but, uh, you know, I think probably my main, uh, my main job now is to help Laura along uh, as she has questions. And then also to uh, to work to make sure that uh, our fan, you know, the sustainability from a family standpoint uh, gets gets taken care of. So, you know, that has to be managed. And um, you know, I still I I still have my crazy ideas uh, at the portfolio management group where they all roll their eyes and go, "We can't do that." Um, and then they think about it, and maybe maybe something comes of it. Uh, of it later, so yeah, I, sometimes, John, I, I feel like I'm that I'm that aging rock star, right? So I'm not really writing too many hits anymore. But now and then, I have one. I have not done the Christmas album yet. Okay. Okay. I haven't done the Christmas album yet, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> Getting close. It, is there anything that's ever come out of those meetings that you were just convinced was going to be absolutely fantastic, got shot down, and then in retrospect you're like, yeah, okay, that's that's probably for the better. Like, was there ever like just like the total batshit crazy? Oh, I'm um, yeah, you know, yeah. There's 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 definitely bad ideas. There's been bad brews. God, I remember baking a a beer with Heather once. That was the most god awful thing we ever made. Uh, that kissed the sewer. Um, you know. Some brewers have had success with it, though. Well, uh, ours wasn't successful. Okay. Uh, you know, and when you have a really bad one, it's just like, okay, we just we just move on. Yeah. Um, you know, we have, we have a, a diversified group now that helps write recipes, do recipe development. Do I drink all of them? Do, do no, you? no, I do not. Okay. You know, um, I appreciate all the things that we have in our portfolio, but and I'm a pretty diverse drinker myself. Um, but there are things in, in our portfolio that, you know, I don't on a regular occasion drink. Is amber still your go-to? I love it when there's you know when I can find amber on tap. I think that's just that's just great and delicious um you know uh, uh, i think you find like with, at least within our company so if you're out doing a, a promotion in a bar first thing i always ask is what do we got on tap and i pick the lightest one what's the lowest alcohol one because i'm out there to shake hands i'm not there to get drunk you know and it's like if it's too hard on tap 
207% alcohol and dry hop, it gets you there in a hurry. Yeah. But I think my favorite one was it was Philadelphia Beer Week, and my Saturday night gig was at Eulogy. And uh, I got there, and um, Nima was there uh, with, with sister. Oh, yeah, Larry, there's a bunch of people here to meet you. We got a couple beers on tap and some bottles, and great. Okay, what's on tap? We got Expedition Stout, 10.5%, and Hop Slam, 10%. Well, the, what's the lightest one on tap? Hop Slam. Oh, that was a night. <laughs> Um, what's the question that you get most often from young brewers that's the wrong question oh young brewers don't talk to me they're afraid of me (laughs) I can see why but yeah Uh, I I, I don't know I uh, I don't know I I guess a better way to, to, to phrase that is you know, when you were learning that you needed two hundred and fifty thousand dollars back in the day, but you only had you know uh, thirty nine thousand, um, what was the one thing that somebody didn't tell you, you know, that, they, that yeah. you really wish they, they would have? You know, uh, how you how are you going to manage things ten years down the road with these partners, investors that you had? And I, I do talk to some people about that. Um, you know, when you're putting this all together, it's like writing a prenup, right? Okay, we all like each other now, but what happens if we don't like each other, or if somebody wants to exit it? How do we do that? And uh, let's let's break down the rules for that now, which is a hard thing to do. Um, and especially with so much money that's going into the industry these days, and people who are getting involved with the industry these days. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of investment. There's a lot of people who. Yeah. yeah. And so you know, if you're somebody that's passionate about the the beer side of things and the brewery side. You don't have all the money, so you've got this passion. Other people are just looking for money, and I unfortunately have seen this movie too many times of those passionate people being taken advantage of by um, uh, people that that know business better, and oftentimes uh, maybe not the uh, the most morally upstanding people who opportunists who have taken advantage of folks and. Uh, I've seen a lot of that in the industry, and it's it's unfortunate. I, I you know, I, I've counseled some people uh, on that, and uh, you know, some have called me for advice. And you know, what do I do now, Larry? Who who's an attorney I can call? It's like okay, yeah, you, here's the person you need to, to handle this, and it it's too it's too bad. So people have to be careful about you. Got to be careful about who you're getting in business with. More than 10 years in now, uh, and as we start to wrap up, um, I want to just ask you, what do you see as the biggest threat to your brewery and your business and your legacy and your, you know, you're saying you're a hundred year old, you know, you want to be a hundred year old business. Um, or you want this to be a hundred year old company. Um, what do you see as the biggest threat to that? Well, I, I think, you know, we're in, uh, uh, we're in Star Wars uh, Episode Five right now. The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Um, you know we've had a lot of success uh, in this this craft beer uh, movement that we started. Uh, you know, guys like me who were you know there towards the forefront. You 
know, we're getting to retirement now, and so there are people that that need to exit, and so you know, you got big guys grabbing it, and they're going to push back. You know, uh, I remember seeing Fritz Maytag being interviewed by by Michael Jackson, and Fritz saying, you know, you know, Michael, there there's one guy. It's got 50% of the business, and he wants 100% of the business. Well, that hasn't changed. That has not changed. And um, it's, it's going to be doggy dog, dog out there, and the big guys are, are coming for that, that share of the craft because uh, they want it all. So, uh, you know, they've got the Death Star. They're moving in a new position, and uh, the rebel forces, we, we have to keep sticking together and, and keep attacking so what's the best part of your day uh, going to bed <laughs> I'm old now <laughs> uh, uh, what's the best part of my day uh, uh, usually uh, having dinner with my wife you know uh, my wife's a professional and we you know sort of an entrepreneur as well and so comparing notes and talking to her about things and relaxing uh, that's the best part of my day a reminder that the simple pleasures are uh, often the best ones absolutely Larry thanks for sitting down with me uh, this has been uh, technically challenging uh, I don't know if the listeners will be able to hear that but uh, but it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun to, to sit and talk with you and I really appreciate you taking the time Thanks for having me, John. Once again, happy birthday. Thank you so much. You can uh, read uh, more about Bells and other breweries and uh, home brewing and more in our latest issue of Craft Beer and Brewing magazine online at beerandbrewing.com. And you should subscribe to the magazine while you're there if you don't already. If you have questions for me, you can reach out. I'm John Hall, and it's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beerandbrewing.com. Or you can talk to me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. And until then, uh, we'll be back next week with a whole new episode. So thanks so much for listening. If you love brewing as much as we do and are inspired by the work of leading commercial brewers like Mitch Steele of New Realm, Tommy Arthur of Lost Abbey, Matt Brindleson of Firestone Walker, Jeff Stuffings and Avery Swanson of Jester King, Jason Perkins of Allagash, and more, then put one of our 2018 Brewers Retreat events on your calendar. These luxury brewing events at gorgeous resort locations around the country pair great brewers, great food, and intimate camaraderie for a truly unique and unforgettable experience. Learn more at brewersretreat.com. And if you're interested in reaching the thousands of listeners who tune into every episode of the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast, we'd love to welcome you as a sponsor. For more information, drop an email to info at beerandbrewing.com and our media sales team will craft a plan that works for you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.